So I have these friends, they're three older pastors, and about once a month they like to get together and just do different things. They've, they've been doing it forever. So they've shared you know, the joys they have in life and in ministry. And they've probably talked bad about some members of their congregations. They just get together and share these things from time to time. And one day they're sitting in a boat fishing and one of them starts the conversation by saying, you know, we ought to just tell each other our deepest and darkest secrets. Well, when they finally come to an agreement that, all right, that would be all right, one of them starts off and he says, you know, my biggest sin is I gamble. Um, and the sad truth of it is I'm not a very good gambler and I've lost a lot of money. And the second pastor pipes up and says, well, since we're being so honest, I got to let you know that... Uh, I cheat on my taxes, and I've been doing it for a long, long time. What? That's pretty bad as well. And the other guy is just very silent for a long time, to the point at which the other two said, Come on, Charlie. Tell us what your biggest sin is. He said, Well, you're going to hate to hear this. I'm a gossip, and I can't wait to get out of this boat. As I told you last week, it is about people, their poor decisions, and the God who remains in control. That's the situation that the Apostle Paul faces as he writes so many of his letters in the New Testament. You just can't help reading them, Corinthians and Galatians, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You know how I remember that those all go together in that order just like that? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Go eat popcorn. <laughs> You'll thank me for it later. Yeah. So that's the situation the Apostle Paul finds himself when he writes these letters. And remember, as I told you last week, Galatia is not like one single church like Tomoka. It's a lot of churches scattered over a geographic area. So he's writing to churches that he has planted that he has watered, that he has seen grown, that he has imparted the truth of the gospel to. And he continues on his journey. He leaves, and about 18 months later, he gets a report on the church. And I, I, I have to guess that he's so excited to hear what's going on with the Galatia churches. And then you know, he gets the report. One of them cheats on his taxes, and one of them's a gossip, and one of them's a gambler. Because what he finds out is these churches have not remained faithful to the call of God on their church. And in large part because they have not remained faithful to the call of God upon their lives. That's something you need to think about. Because when churches go, go astray, it's not seemingly all at once. is because there have been folks on the inside that maybe haven't been faithful to the call of God on their lives. And we may never know what the call of God is on our own lives until we get toward the end of it. And we look back, we look in a rearview mirror and we can see, oh my goodness, there's the hand of God. That's what God did. That's what God was doing. I didn't understand. That's where God was taking me and that's how God was leading me. And so Paul finds himself back writing still to the church of Galatia, unhappy, angry, not satisfied and in his apostolic role 
He is ready to correct them in the name of Jesus. I remember I, I used to, I, I had a television show years ago in Georgia for the place where I worked. And we would interview a lot of people. One of the neatest people I interviewed was Mike Minter. He was a, a Carolina Panther football player, went to the Super Bowl. And that was his role for many years. And he was a profound and admitted Christian. And I asked him on that show, how do you reconcile running down a football field and tackling somebody, knocking them down to the ground, nearly killing them and your Christian faith? And he said, I tackle you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and he goes on with playing the game. That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He is about to tackle them in the name of Jesus because they need it. But that doesn't lessen his love for them. It doesn't lessen his interest in them or his concern for them. Now, this isn't the first time he's had to do something like this. Remember, I read to you last week that passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes this to Timothy. I think we have that on the screen. Next time. Alright, so here's what he says. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. So he wrote that in about 66 or 67 A.D. But 10 years earlier, he was writing to the church in Galatia. And he's writing the same thing. So what he's telling Timothy is, look, there are some things in ministry that are going to be very difficult. And you just need to know from the start what they are. And here's one of them. Sometimes people choose to act more like people then they choose to act like the God who made them and who called them and who loved them. And maybe we know people who are like that. Maybe from time to time we have been the person who is that. I don't know about you, but it's true for me. Sometimes I act more like people than I act like the God who created the people. Then I act like my savior. So he's saying to Timothy, look, this is an occupational hazard. But you know, he comes by it quite honestly. He sees in, um, in Jesus' own ministry, in John chapter 8, and that's 25, 30 years earlier than when Paul is writing to the Galatians. In John chapter 8, Jesus is facing the children of Abraham, the righteous, zealous Jews. And Jesus says in John 8, uh, beginning of verse 31, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know what the truth is, and the truth will set you what? Free. What Jesus is saying there is this. As you, as you encounter people, as you go about your Christian life, don't just share my quotes. Now, if you're on social media, you know that's what we do all the time. 
We share quotes, good, good sayings, and that's nice. Jesus is saying, don't just share my quotes, live my words. So if you're going to be on social media and you're going to share a quote of Jesus or about Jesus or about faith in Jesus, just make sure that behind all that, there is the walkway in your life that you are following his steps. I'm following the steps of my master as I said this. So they say to him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? We're already free. Jesus continued, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son set you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for me or for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Not their father. The father of the world that they're following. So Jesus is dealing with this issue about free and slave. About Abraham's descendants created in the flesh as opposed to the descendants of God created in the spirit and by promise. Paul is going to make a couple of statements in verse uh, chapter 4 verse 15. He's going to say, um, why have I stopped being a blessing to you? He's really asking them this one question. What has happened to your joy? I think that, yeah, right there. What has happened to all your joy? Any of you go see the movie, A Man Called Otto? Yeah, my wife and I saw it this last weekend. And this is not a spoiler alert, but if you ever looked in somebody's life and thought, where is their joy? In most of that movie, he had none. But as you learn his story, you might understand why. And the Apostle Paul wants to know, when I left you, when I finished my ministry in Galatia, you were full of joy. And he wants to know in those 18 months, what has happened to all your joy? Again, you know anybody like that? I think of uh, folks who stumble along life's pathway and they face difficulty of all time. And they face situations that they just can't get over. The divorce that was absolutely unexpected came out of nowhere. The diagnosis from the doctor that, you know what, this is worse than we thought. And you might be facing amputation this week. What happens to your joy in those very difficult moments? And it's not that they faced difficulty. They just had life. But they had people who came in who were zealous about teaching a different gospel than what the Apostle Paul taught. It was going to be their brand, their flavor, their gospel. In fact, he would call them zealous. The, the interesting thing behind that word, it's very much like our word jealous. And it's a, a word that the sound of which creates the expectation for what the word is. I'll give you the example. For this word, zealous, is very much like the word boiling. When you put a pot on, you put water in it, 
And you know when it starts to boil. If you're looking at it, you see the little bubbles from the bottom. They start making their way to the top. And then before long, you can see, uh, see larger bubbles. And then at the top, it is absolutely bubbling. And sometimes it will bubble over. And he's saying, that's what you're doing. You are so zealous to put your gospel in these churches that the source of that bubbling up is not from our Father who is in heaven. It's from your Father who is the devil. And they weren't going to stand for that kind of teaching. The people Jesus met, the people Timothy met, and the people that the Apostle Paul was speaking to. Have you ever known someone who was so filled with jealousy that they just couldn't see straight, they couldn't think, they couldn't act? Or when they did act, it was in a very, very bad way. And they took all the joy from the Galatians, from the churches. When Paul left, it was a happy church. For some reason, they let others come in, teach a different gospel, steal their joy, and there was no happiness there. See, the only happiness we can find on this planet is when we're following in the footsteps of the one who suffered on our behalf, who died on a cross, who rose from the grave, who lives today, who loves us, cares for us, and will take care of us. That's one of Paul's big questions. What has happened to all your joy? There's another big question he asks in verse 20. He says, it's a statement, I am perplexed about you. These are people that he knew well. He had lived with. He had had meals with. He had uh, uh, worked with them in their community. Saw their children uh, grow. Saw some of their kids born. He was very certain of them and of their faith when he left. But something happened over that, over that time. I am perplexed. I am uncertain. This is a mystery. I don't get it. What's happened to you? Have you ever gone to a reunion? 50-year reunion, 40, 60, more. And you see somebody. I remember the last reunion I went to a few years ago. It was a 40-year high school reunion. And there was a guy there who I know, knew from high school. I didn't recognize him at all. But when he told me who he was, that gave me some context. But you know these people, you ever have a reunion with them and you hear their story? Maybe when they were young they had no faith at all. And you thought, nothing good is ever going to come of that person. It's just not going to happen. They don't have a place for Christ in their heart. But God didn't give up on them. You may have. And now they have a magnificent story to tell about how God worked in their lives all along a very dark path to bring them to where they are now in their faith. That's not the case here. Paul left them in very good standing, strong faith. He said, I, I don't even know you. Where did you come from? What did you do with the Christians that I left in Galatia? See, here's a pro tip. That is this. Selfishness, selfishness kills joy and abandons 
love. In fact, you could say that the opposite of love is selfishness. Because if I love someone or something, myself has to diminish in order to give that person, this thing, more room in my life. But for them, selfishness killed their joy and in this case, abandoned their love for Christ. It's hard to hear God's voice when you have already decided what you want him to say. And their unselfishness was doing that to them in their walk with him. Well, I'm going to give you a little chart. I don't often do this, but please throw that chart up. Hopefully it, uh, okay, we didn't make it as a chart, but that's all right. Uh, Hagar, this was the servant of Abraham's wife. And Abraham's wife said, take the servant and have a child with her because she didn't think she was ever going to have a child with Abraham. So they broke the will of God, got Hagar involved in this plan, and Hagar was a slave woman. We'll contrast that with Sarah, who was a free wife. And what we're doing in this comparison, Hagar's representation of the children of Abraham under the law, where Sarah is representation of God's promise and God's spirit, freedom in Christ. The next one says that Ishmael was born of the flesh, that would be Hagar's son, as a trademark of Judaizers, but Isaac was born through promise and through the Spirit. Paul is using this line of thought to say, look, I've heard all this Abraham and flesh and circumcision and uncircumcision and freedom and law. I've heard it all before. Jesus, my Lord, dealt with it when he was here. Here's the deal. You can live by the law and be bound by it or you can live in Christ and be bound by promise and the Spirit. Next, Mount Sinai was the Jerusalem of the Judaizers and is a symbol of slavery. Mount Zion stands for joyous freedom. So you're hearing these words over and over. The life in Christ, joyous, free. Promise, Spirit. Under Abraham, under the law, under bondage, under sin. You say, well, the law doesn't apply to us. No, but sin does. We can be bound. But Paul and Jesus and the New Testament and the Lord himself calling us to this joyous freedom. Next line. Ishmael is in slavery and opposes his brother. Isaac represents Paul in this passage and his converts suffer persecution. So that's one thing he's telling to the, to the Christians in Galatia. Look, you can't change the gospel every time something difficult comes along. You can't change it just to address a different problem or to satisfy yourselves. That's selfishness, which is the opposite of love. Next slide. Judaizers are to be refused since Ishmael did not gain an inheritance. And 
Paul's gospel connects believers with the free woman and the promise of liberty. I know that's maybe a lot of heavy theology there, but it's the story that Paul is going to continue to tell even through chapter 6 of the book of Galatians. Read that book. It's all over there. And it's in so many other places in the New Testament. It seems that it could be a simple solution, but even for those of us who are set free indeed by the words of Jesus Christ, we have a sinful nature that keeps wanting to pull us back and back, back into sin, which is back into slavery, which is no different than those who are trying to live under the law. So I don't look really down on them. I just use them as an example because it relates so much to us. Don't fall into the trap of sin. It's just another way to take your focus off of God, steal your joy, invalidate the promise, and cancel the spirit. Don't do that. And all of these different issues that get set up, Paul is getting ready to address in a very specific way. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. He says, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, the only thing that matters, boy, when there's a statement like that, you should underline it, write it in the margin of your Bible, write it on a note to yourself, send it to others. When they get so concerned about the things that are going on in real life, he says the only thing that matters is faith. Expressing itself in what? In love. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. On a Bible college campus or seminary campus or in a coffee shop these days, you can get into massive theological arguments about God, the nature of God, the things of God. And I think one of the uh, unfortunate things about the church today is that there are people who hold God hostage because of what their church is doing or not doing. Because there are so many other things that the church is doing besides faithfully expressing itself in love. I think so often about... um, the people that we don't associate with or the people that we've told cannot come here. And we may not have a sign out front. Many years ago um, in ministry, a friend of mine was telling me a story that there was a new widow in their congregation. And one of the elders of the church had been assigned to provide pastoral care for that widow and her two boys and one thing led to another and literally before you know it the elder has made a poor decision to leave his wife of many years and their two kids for this widow and her two boys well you can imagine what that would have done to a congregation. How difficult that would be. What the impact on a congregation would be. Somebody, some would say, you know what? He was an elder. I'm not coming to this church anymore. Even though he had been removed as an elder. And then 
there needed to be some work done on the church. The gentleman I'm telling you about was a contractor. They took bids. His company, the elders, former elders' company, got the low bid and so was given the work to do on the church building. Somebody else said, you know what? We need to put a sign outside this church that says this church condones adultery. Do you think that it really did? No, it did not. But can you imagine, folks, and you think in your own mind, maybe understandably so, just left the church because of that situation? And when things like that happen, in our own minds, it makes us think, man, if that's an elder of the church, what if it, how could it, won't it happen to me, and then what will I do? Another pastor told me the story of a, of a deacon in a church who was working for a, a large factory and the factory went on strike and he needed to cross the picket line to work but couldn't work at the factory and so took a job at another place in town as a janitor and he was mopping a floor one day with another janitor she happened to be a she and their hands accidentally touched and that was the moment at which that affair began and long story short he said through prayer and God's graciousness that marriage was restored but folks in that church could put up a sign that says we don't condone and then you can put any name of sin on there that you want do you remember Jesus first message I think it's in Matthew 3 you can go back and look at it his first sermon the first words of his first sermon began with the word repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and how many of us know folks who've been in similar situation, situations, have done worse or not as bad. And somebody's decided, you're not welcome here anymore. Who in your life do you know that's a friend of yours that you care about? That you could invite to this church and you know that they would be welcomed? Loved, prayed for, in hopes that their joy could return, that they could find the promise of the Lord, and they could have a spirit filled life so that they could be close to God. Is this that kind of place? My friends would want to know. And I hope that our answer is yes. Faith and love expressing itself. But they're both active. I've got faith. Yeah, we've all got faith. I've got love. Well, we all got love. But they are active. Paul says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the late 1800s and a fabulous one. 
And here's what he wrote. He said, the two graces, faith and love, are inseparable. They're like Mary and Martha. They are sisters and they abide in one house. Faith, like Mary, sits at Jesus' feet and hears his words. And then love, like Martha, diligently goes about the house and rejoices to honor the divine Lord. Faith is light while love is heat. And in every beam of grace from the son of righteousness, you will find a measure of each. True faith in God cannot exist without love to him, nor sincere love without faith. And I don't know about your sin and I don't want to. But how many of us would want the sin that we have committed to keep us from the open, loving arms of a Savior who throws his arms open wide for us. You know, doesn't the Bible say Jesus came to seek and save the righteous? No. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so many of us don't even know the lost anymore. I've got some neighbors I'm pretty sure are lost. And is your mission in life to seek and to save that which is lost and restore them to the joy of the master? It was 79 years ago, this coming Christmas, that the Battle of the Bulge was taking place. It was Christmas of 1944. And in the Battle of the Bulge, 19,000 American soldiers lost their lives. And tens of thousands of more became casualties, wounded in military hospitals. There was one young boy there, young man, whose name was Dick. And he was from Illinois. And before he was called to serve in the army, he had fallen for a young girl whose name was Mabel. And she would tell me later that they were not formally engaged but they had an agreement between themselves. They were in love. And when he came back from the war, they were to be married. And so Dick went off to the war and he fought on the Battle of the Bulge and he was killed. And Mabel had a choice there to lose her joy. But see, her life's foundation was not upon the relationship she had with the young man as much as she loved him and as much as she wanted to be married to him and as much as she had hope in their future together. And she was sad. She was hurt. But her joy in the Lord 
never wavered. And so she went to Moody Bible Institute and upon graduation there, decided that she would go and be a missionary to Indian tribes in the Dakotas. And she went there by herself and she served on Indian reservations for years, ministering to, serving, caring for people she had no relationship to until she had been there a while and had the chance to know them and to love them, but in all things to serve them in the name of Jesus. It was her faith expressing itself in love. She didn't really make any money. She was poor and she lived in poor conditions. But that was the road that she believed God was leading her down. And she learned over those many years, that's what faith does. It follows where you can't see. It loves when you can't know. She served there many years until the point at which her father had died on the farm in Illinois. And now her mother was in difficult physical health and becoming elderly. And so Mabel was called home to live out her days with her mother taking care of her mom on this farm in Illinois. And it wasn't long before her mother had died. This was now in the 1970s. And at that time, farmland in Illinois was exceptionally pricey. So they had three kids and they sold the farm and the substantial proceeds were put in trust for Mabel, her sister, and her brother. Now you're Mabel. She's about 64 years old at this time. She's lived really in abject poverty. She's not seen the bright lights of anything. And now she's wealthier than she ever thought she would be. What do you do? Mabel moved to Lincoln, Illinois. She could have bought a house, a fine car. She got a little efficiency apartment and she began to rent it. She bought a used car and she was going to church and faithful to the Lord as ever. And during one of the pastor's messages, she was struck by what she believed was the voice of God telling her what she was going to do, how she could, for the rest of her life, express her faith through love. Because that's the only thing that matters. So Mabel went to see the pastor and said, this is my situation in life. I'm 64. I have no kids. I'm not going to be married. I would like to put a child, a boy, through Bible college. Pastor says, well, I, th I think I have a good idea of who that young man is because he's going to the Bible college here in town, to Lincoln, and has no family support at all. And so she met with that young man over lunch one day and she laid out what her plan was, which was to put him all the way through college, all tuition, all books, all expenses. 
And I was so flabbergasted by what she said to me. I said, I, I just, I, I, I just am not worthy of that. I know somebody who's in greater need than I am. And I told her about Rod. She said, well, let's talk next week. So we met the next week and talked and she said, well, I've made my decision what I'm going to do. She said, I'm going to put Rod through Bible college and I'm going to put you through Bible college as well. And then I introduced her to Jeff and Jerry. And then she met Paul and she went on and on. 16 kids at one time in Bible college. She became the grandmother to my children. She was in our wedding. We spent Christmases and holidays with her. She was in every home that we've ever had until we went to North Carolina. My wife had gone on a mission trip to Africa. And while Deanna was there, Mabel fell going into church one night and she never recovered. That's bad. But the good news is because her faith had expressed itself in love all those years, we have no doubt that Mabel's in the presence of Jesus today. And when I picked Deanna up at the airport, she got in the car. I said, I have some bad news. See, Mabel was more than just this person who interacted with us over time. In her chair, next to a, a, a china closet, she had a post-it note with the people that she would pray for week by week. And she had one note that never came down. And at the top of that note was my name. Mabel prayed for me every single day. She knew I needed it. She knew that I needed it. So as I said, Mabel was an example to us. I remember one time I was speaking at a church in Savannah and we took Mabel on that trip with us. In our hotel room, there were two beds. Deanna and I were one and Mabel and the two kids were in the other. But the Apostle Paul's goal is to get those Galatians to remember that the most important thing you can do is express your faith in love. Now he's going to circle back again. I'll be back in a couple weeks. Chapter 6. Pastor Cord next week. Through the spirit. Great stuff. But don't let the light go out on your love for God. Whatever path you're on today. Whatever misstep you've had. How different my life would be. If Dick had not lost his life in the battle of the bulge. I might never have met Mabel. She may never have served all those on the Indian reservations. 
She may never have been that faithful person that came to a church and began to serve in so many ways. So I'm asking you. Yeah, life's taken some crazy turns for you. Some uncertain turns. Uh, turns, Some places you didn't ever want to go, but you've been there. And I pray the light that's pulling you forward is your faith expressing itself in love. Lord, we do love you. We have faith that our work on your behalf will be blessed by you so that others can come to know Jesus Christ, whom we love and whom we serve. We pray in his name. Amen. Blessings.